a case that grew cold with a timeline that has gaping holes. The police were bound by laws in place when it comes to missing persons and when and how to file a missing person report. By the time that Orlando Police Department got involved, things had happened and people's memories had dumped potentially useful information. Jennifer's black Malibu was not parked in her assigned parking spot at 2226. Jennifer did not answer her landline when numerous people called to check on her, and her cell phone went straight to voicemail, leading investigators to believe that the device had been powered off. Later, it would come to light that the battery had been removed, and the last known ping from the device occurred away from Jennifer's condo on the night of January 23rd. This had various reasons as to why it would happen, but when hearing of this, many people began to jump to the conclusion that Jennifer had been abducted the night before. However, many things found inside the condo on that afternoon of January 24th say otherwise. Making heads or tails of 16,000 pages worth of information is no easy task. Not when so many forks are presented in the road. In years since Jennifer's disappearance, the world of true crime burst on scene and those sitting at home listening over and over are starting to fit the pieces of puzzles together and aid investigators in their need to close out cases. We can only hope that the same will happen for Jennifer in her case and that closing out this 16-year-old cold case will bring justice for Jennifer and closure for the Kessie family. I want to insert that if you have any information that may be useful in the disappearance of Jennifer Kessie, you can contact the Kessie Family Hotline at 941-201-4009 or the Orlando Police Department at 321-235-5300. You can remain anonymous, but the information you know and can provide could change the entire direction of this case. Welcome to the True Crime Librarian. I'm your librarian and host, Ashley. Tonight, we start down the dark journey of theories and accounts of what happened in the days prior to Jennifer's disappearance. With the unknown comes a million variations of what could have happened. With the investigation having so many leads that had not been investigated, you can't help but take what we know and formulate a possibility. But now there are people coming forward that seen Jennifer in the days before her trip to St. Croix. We know that when she arrived, the trip was something she gushed about. But what if she was gushing so much in order to hide something that was happening in her life? What if Jennifer, the overly cautious woman, was going through something dark and sinister and this could have led to her abduction? Tonight, we take a look at it all, and I ask that you don't make an assumption until you hear all that has to be said. This is a bottomless case, and the waters are only getting muddier the deeper we dive. Warning, this episode contains adult language. Listener's discretion is advised.
Good evening, all of my true crime nerds. Thank you all for tuning in on this episode in the disappearance of Jennifer. A few things to get to before we get started tonight. The latest episode in the Library and After Dark bonus show is live on Patreon, and we take a look at new evidence to come to light in the West Memphis 3 case and what that could mean for Damien, Jason, and Jesse in their pursuit of becoming free from the confides of being convicted child murderers. This gives you more to indulge in and supports the show all at the same time. You can still head over to the truecrimelibrarian.com and make a one-time donation to the show, or you can support without a dime leaving your pocket by reviewing and recommending the show. Yes, you can even do this on YouTube. So show some love for TTCL and the librarian. Now, to what you all came here for, the true crime. So last week we went through the timeline of this case and where it went cold. I think there was some misunderstanding about my stance on the case. I'm not saying that Orlando is an incompetent police department or that officers who worked this case were incompetent. There was about 16,000 pages of investigation work in this case. What I am saying there is a flaw in the system when it comes to filing a missing persons report. The last time anyone spoke to Jennifer was around 10 o'clock the night before, and the last time anybody laid eyes on her was at 6 p.m. that night. She was safe and in her condo the last anyone knew. Her car was dumped at an apartment complex less than a mile from the condo, and the person to exit it has been dubbed the luckiest person of interest ever. Because with each three-second snap of the security cameras, their face is obstructed by the bars of the wrought iron fence. We know that there was about 10 construction workers living in the empty condo across from Jennifer's unit, and this was not documented anywhere of who was occupying that unit. We know that the only crime scene available was contaminated by her parents and loved ones who knew that her disappearing into thin air meant something was seriously wrong and they wanted to find Jennifer. We know that the call to Orlando PD came in sometime between 1 p.m. and 3 p.m. on January 24th while the Kessies were making their two-hour trip from Tampa to Orlando to check on her themselves. We know that Jennifer was an overly cautious person and really took extra measures to make sure she was safe when she felt like she wasn't. Jennifer's purse, keys, and cell phone were not located in the condo once the Kessies arrived. But aside from the evidence that she had gotten up and got ready for work, there wasn't anything to suggest something like a struggle went down in her unit. It's believed that Jennifer was abducted after exiting her apartment by this lucky person, and what happened from there is where things get a little murky. So the big thing is right now, I guess, is the great debate of the case is whether Jennifer was abducted the night of January 23rd or she was abducted in the early morning hours of January 24th. There are so many theories floating around on the internet as to what this timeline really was. I went over one where the abduction occurred in the early morning hours of January 24th because I do believe Jennifer was in her apartment getting ready for work on the morning of January 24th. So last week when I was talking about this case, I spoke out about the phone call with Rob, not the argument that the two had. That's not what I want to talk about. It was a lover's spat, if you will. I want to talk about what Drew had told us of the conversation. There was a knock on the door. Now, we know that Rob was the last person that she talked to on the night of January 23rd. She had already spoken to her father, mother, and her brother, Logan, that day. So it's not like she got off the phone with Rob and called Drew to tell him about the knock on the door. I figure that Rob told Drew about this knock and it was late at night and Jennifer chose to not answer as she didn't recognize the person on the other side of the door. So the question is presented, did something happen to Jennifer the night of January 23rd and not 
the morning of January 24th, like originally thought. Let's look at this, shall we? Okay. This is what we know the condo to have looked like once the Cassies arrived and started looking around for anything that would stand out to them or look abnormal out of Jennifer's very regular morning routine. The t-shirt that Jennifer was thought to have worn to bed that night before was laying on the bed and the bedding had not been made and the shirt looked like it had obviously been slept in. And Joyce confirms that Jennifer often slept in a t-shirt and her underwear. Seeing as how Jennifer drove from Fort Lauderdale that morning and went straight to work, she hadn't even made it home when Logan told her about Travis leaving his cell phone at her place. And she said when she got home that night, she would look for it and she would mail it to him the next day because she could take it to work at Westgate and there was a UPS FedEx drop off there in the building. So it's not like she came home, dropped her luggage off, pulled her sleeping shirt out, threw it on the bed. And it's also, she's been gone for an entire weekend. Her bed would have still been made had she not slept in it. So there are some conflicting things right there. Now we can go into the bathroom and we touched on this a little bit last week and it showed signs of Jennifer getting ready for work that morning. Girls, you will understand this. In the shower behind the bottles on the corners of the tub, there was water. We know as women, unless you have one of those little caddy things, water tends to collect behind those bottles. Not like a flood style collection, but it's the trickle down from the bottles being used or from the water spray while you're washing up. Had she taken a shower the night before and not that morning, we wouldn't necessarily see the level of water accumulation if there was any by the time the Kessies arrived. I have nailed down that the Kessies arrived at Jennifer's unit about 3.15 and Logan and Travis arrived at 3 o'clock. And last week I said nailing down when they got there would help this case tremendously. And this is where I'm talking about. Had Jennifer showered the night before and not the morning of, by the time the Kessies arrived, that tub and tile would have been bone dry. But Joyce says that there was water behind those bottles, leading for them to believe she was in the shower that morning getting ready for work. The other thing that we know is Jennifer was not a person who liked to shower the night before. She liked to get up in the morning and take her shower and get ready for work. So her showering the night before and not the morning of would be uncharacteristic. Now it's not unheard of that Jennifer took showers at night. She probably did, especially if she had been out uh, drinking or at the club or been out later in the night. She would have probably showered before bed and then showered again in the morning. We all know people who, who don't mind showering in the morning, and we know people who absolutely refuse to get wet in the morning because they are not morning people. Jennifer was not this top. The other thing we can take a look at, especially for those of us that live close to areas where large bodies of water are or that are um, traditionally humid, it takes a little longer for water to evaporate. However, the humidity levels inside of your home do not compare to the levels outside. So I can't say that had she taken a, you know, shower the night before, there would be absolutely no water uh, because she lived in Florida. I don't know what the typical dry time is for something like that. And since she's the only person living in the unit, you can't constitute that water being there because of somebody else showering. I mean, I guess since we don't know a whole lot about this case, you could say somebody else took a shower in her shower, but the shower head in its position fit the height that Jennifer stood. So um, the water being accumulated there is a big sign that the shower is used that morning. Had she showered the night before, there'd virtually be none because they didn't arrive till the afternoon. So you're looking at 12 plus hours for it to dry out. Say Jennifer took a shower at 
10.30 the night before. Well, it's 3.15 in the afternoon of the following day. So we're 12 plus hours out and we still have water. This is another thing that led me to believe that she was there that morning. The next thing that I want to point out is the towel she used once getting out of the shower to dry herself off. Jennifer laid it out across her washer or dryer in the laundry room so that it would dry completely. We know that if you throw it on the floor or you hang it on one of those hooks, it doesn't necessarily ever get completely dry and you always have this like slightly damp towel that eventually develops that real musky smell. And uh, if you're sensitive to smells like I am, the towel's no good anymore. It seems like you can never get rid of that smell. So for her to lay it out on the dryer, this was common according to her mother. And the towel was still damp. Now, Laying the towel out like that to give it most surface contact in the air so that it can dry. Had she showered the night before, the towel would have been bone dry, completely dry, regardless of the humidity, especially with it being in the laundry room. This helps the flow of air because they typically have a better airflow so that the dryer doesn't heat up your home as much and that you can get sufficient drying from your appliance. So it being damp was another thing to, to really jump out at me and say, Jennifer was there that morning getting ready for work and she had showered. In the bathroom besides the water and her damp towel, you, they also found Jennifer's makeup and hair products strung out on the counters. Last week, you know that I said Joyce called Jennifer a bathroom slob in the mornings. She just was like a tornado that rolled through the bathroom and she would come home at the end of the day and she would reorganize all of that and the process would start over the next day. She had this stuff just everywhere, just strung out everywhere. So that's also not going to say that because she had went to St. Croix when she flew back due to their cancellation of the flight on Saturday and flying in on Sunday. Jennifer had to have arrived home and removed some of these products had she taken any of it with her on the trip. So her not coming home Sunday night and that stuff being strung out along the counter, do you see her putting on her makeup or throwing the stuff on the counter the night before just stringing it. I can't. I really can't. I can't see that she came home, <clears throat> excuse me, and unpacked her toiletries and just scattered them amongst the bathroom and just was like, well, I'll get to it in the morning, considering that she liked to come home at night and straighten everything back up before she went to bed. And then just repeat the process the next day. The other thing that I found extremely interesting was they talked about her contact lens case because Jennifer had prescription corrective eyewear. She wore contacts throughout the day and she would come home, take them out, put them in the lens case and wear her glasses at home. A lot of us do that. I'm a person who has to have corrective lenses. And if I wear contacts, my eyes get tired and I can't seem to really see as well with my contacts after having them in for 12 plus hours. So I come home, take them out, put my glasses on and let my eyes rest. There would have to be something I can't, I mean, I can go without glasses. Um, it's difficult. I can't read a lot of things. I can still make out what's going on like on the television and things like that. But if there's any kind of printing on the screen, very unlikely that I can read it without squinting. And that only just makes tired eyes more tired. So having those glasses is important. Well, in Jennifer's bathroom, we found the contact lens case with no contacts inside of it. And we found that her glasses had been left behind. The other thing is, <laughs> if something along the lines of Jennifer deciding this wasn't her life, she didn't want to be a part of this no more, I don't know if something happened in St. Croix or something happened between her and Rob, I, 
don't hold me to anything, but you know, leaving behind glasses, if you know that you're not going to be able to come home that evening, you would have taken the contact lens case and the glasses just so you had that option of, I mean, creature of habits. Most people who look for that relief of on tired eyes at the end of the day would not have the left glasses behind. And we all know how incredibly frustrating it can be to replace them. They are replaceable, very much so. The contact lens case, it's replaceable, but the glasses itself being left behind was one that was like, okay, it's too big of a pain in the ass to get glasses to have left those behind and know you weren't coming home to retrieve them. And so you would think with the contacts, and the glasses, she would have taken all of that in, that stuff with her had she known she wasn't coming home that evening. Is this something factual that shows that Jennifer was abducted? No, it's not. But it does bring in doubt. And doubt is something that we need when eliminating leads in this case. And it brings doubt into her departure was not willingly. I can't see that she would have willingly left those items behind, knowing that she wouldn't be home. Joyce was very adamant about Jennifer's routine. They knew their daughter better than any one of us looking into this case and researching. They knew her better than the investigators. And they really, truly believed that this was not something Jennifer would have done by leaving some of this, these things behind. This is the thing that stood out to me as well, just because I know what I would have done in this instance and leaving something insignificant behind, not likely. I also want to put out that a person who attacked her the night before would not have thought to come back into her unit, remove the contacts from the lens case, scatter her products along the bathroom. This level of staging in a crime scene to mislead others is not I don't want to say it's unheard of but it's highly unlikely you would the person staging the scene would have to know her incredibly well to go in <clears throat> to go in and stage her bathroom in this manner so that anybody else who knew her in the same at the same level would recognize this as a normal way that Jennifer would have gotten ready for work that morning. Knowing her that well, I believe, is reserved for those who really knew Jennifer and a person working in the throes of murder or kidnap, whichever, they would not think to come back and put all of this together so that her loved ones would be thrown off about the events that happened. It's too big of a stretch for me, and I'm not convinced that she was abducted after talking with Rob that night. Here's something else that I want to kind of put out there because if we're talking about theories, one that came up is maybe she doesn't want to be found. Maybe she decided this life she built was not the one she wanted anymore and the best way to start over is to make it look like she was kidnapped and then drive to wherever and start life over. Is it possible that she did this? I mean, I can't rule that out but I also can't see it. Not looking at it, at it at the angle that I'm looking at it. There is too much normalcy about the state of her condo for me to think that she just walked away from this life. She wasn't bound to anybody as a wife. She didn't have a family that depended on her. Her job and her career was not something that solidified who Jennifer was. So it could have all of those things could have easily been changed. If she didn't want to be with Rob anymore, she could have ended the relationship. They didn't have children together. They weren't raising a family. They didn't even live together. So ending that relationship, although it would have hurt for anybody who had been involved for over a year, that pain would be there, but it wouldn't hinder some, I can't see it hindering her into being like, well, None of that is so important that you couldn't change it. That's, that's what I'm getting at was, you know, 
rob the problem possibly but like I said because they weren't bound by marriage or children mm, it's easy to end that relationship no one wants to be the one to say they're unhappy or no one wants to be the person to hear how you don't fulfill the person you love and I say love because you don't invest that much time into a relationship they were together for over a year and you don't date somebody for that length of time, take trips and fighting the distance that separated you. If you didn't love the other person, they may not have said it to one another. I'm not really sure whether or not they exchanged, you know, I love yous, but all of that, the distance, you know, the, the vacationing, all of that is not a reason enough for her to be like, mm. I'm just going to walk away from this life. It It's just too hard to reset life. That's something you would hear from a person who who's married, who has children, who has built this life that we've seen time and time again where, the you know, somebody annihilates their entire family. That's not what we're looking at here. Everything that was going on in Jennifer's life was capable of being changed we can revert back to that argument that night and even you know solidify this that she could have ended her relationship with rob because that would have been perfect opportunity no matter how big or small the spat was if she wanted out she could have turned that into something huge causing the relationship to end if it was nothing more than a lover spat according to rob something that was definitely capable of the them two just bouncing back and moving on why fight like that if you're not in it you know either you don't entertain these small little lover spats or you blow them completely out of the water and use them as your way of ending the relationship. I just, the theory that she just was, had walked away from her life just doesn't fit for me. It really doesn't. Her career was changeable. Yes, she had a degree, but if she wasn't happy at the firm, she could have went somebody somewhere else. You know, I, and as close as she was with her family, I just don't see this being a viable option in this case. I don't think she walked away and went out there and started a new life and is sitting on the sidelines watching all of us tear apart the life she did live and try to figure out what happened to her. I really can't see that being the in game of this whole case i just it doesn't make any sense but it is something that a lot of people believe that she had done and that's a little scary considering any person who sits down and rationally thinks this out you would have come to the same conclusion i did it's all changeable nothing of it would have created such heartache that she couldn't recover from and she was still young. She still had a lot of life in front of her. She would have kept her family and changed her life if that was the issue. Not walk away from it all. Okay, so we're going to start on this next part of this case. And um, if you've been following this case for a while and you've listened to more than just my coverage or what have you you have found unconcluded hosted by sean guard and his friend scott if you haven't heard of their show i encourage you to go listen after you finish listening to mine and from there you can look into their real-time investigation into jennifer's disappearance and where all of these leads like this go I'm not going to lie. When I first heard Jennifer, it was through True Crime Garage. And then I listened to every episode of Unconcluded. And today I'm going back and I'm listening to these episodes because it's been a hot minute since I've listened to them. 
And so I want to go back through and see, you know, where Sean is and where Scott is in their investigation and where it's lining up where I am in our coverage over here on TTCL. And so I'm just, they have done an incredible job. The credit honestly goes to them because their dives are deeper than anything I could have imagined for my show. So at first when I'd heard this and I went back and re-listened, I wasn't sure if I was going to share this information. But the more I looked into it and thought about it, the more I realized this can help and maybe it will help somebody else remember these events. If you're just hearing this case for the first time and you live in the area or I don't know, I'm hoping that by sharing this information, it can help somebody else and trigger their memory who may know more and may can corroborate what is, is going to be heard in the next, you know, 10 to 15 minutes. I didn't find anything that could be harmful from this. So this is credited back to Unconcluded. This is coming from their research and their investigation into this case. And like I said, I didn't think there would be any harm in me sharing this information. So going back to sometime between January 14th and January 18th, we know January 18th is the day that Jennifer made the three-hour drive to Fort Lauderdale so that she and Rob could fly to St. Croix on the 19th of January. Jennifer goes into Northbridge at Millennial Lake Apartment Leasing Office to inquire about a one-bedroom apartment. And before you jump the gun and say, see, she was looking at, no, listen, I'm not bringing this to you to support that maybe Jennifer was looking for an out in life so she could start over. It's actually on the contrary. I'm bringing this to you because there could be something that would explain this sudden disappearance. The woman in the least seeing officer, she goes by a pseudonym over on Unconcluded. So we're just going to call her the woman here on TTCL and we're going to avoid any of the confusion. I'm going to leave her anonymous. She wants to be um, talked to by Orlando police. She's willing to share what she has and she has shared it. Um, but as far as I know, up to date, nothing has come from this. The woman remembers the day that Jennifer Kessie came into the office because it was a very busy day. And in 2006, the complex community was still pretty new. And this complex community is amazing. And I call it a community because the apartments were located on upper level floors as the ground floors were reserved for retail establishments and shops to aid in the residents to live a much simpler um, life and could find what they needed there and very rarely would have to leave the complex um, in search of something they needed. That was the hopes of the way that this, this community was built. And in 2006, because it was still fairly new, this woman, she remembers that they were only at about 20% capacity. She said that Jennifer really stood out to her because of her eyes. And once she started talking to her and she learns Jennifer's last name is Kessie, that sticks out to her. It just reminded her of something. But as they get further into their conversation, Jennifer is acting all kinds of awkward. So this woman is asking Jennifer, you know, what what she is looking for in the apartment, what things that she likes, how she likes to shop, this, that, and the other. This is all to help put her in a unit that would be the best fit for her. But Jennifer wasn't looking at her during this interaction. She was actually looking past her and out the window of the leasing office that faced into the community. And she was very focused on that scenery behind. And when she would answer some of the questions, they were very simple responses. The lady said that Jennifer seemed very uninterested and that her behavior was on borderline of maybe she was scared or maybe she was looking for someone. 
And the speculation is that maybe Jennifer had been followed to Northbridge um, at Millennial Lake. There's no evidence to corroborate this. Um, we don't really understand why Jennifer had that, um, was acting in such a way in this office, but she was extremely interested in the world outside of the office. And maybe it was because she was looking for somebody who she thought was following her, or maybe she knew she was being followed and she was scared and she was trying to bide some time so she could get out of there safely. I don't know. And I'm not going to pretend to know. The other question that pangs in the back of my mind, even though Jennifer loved her condo, you can't help but maybe wonder if she went to Northbridge in hopes to find something that she could move into um, because the construction workers and their catcalling and harassment was something that was putting Jennifer on such unease that she no longer felt safe in that area. So there is that possibility um, that she was looking at potentially moving away from the condo complex. I'm not going to confirm nor deny that. Nothing ever came from Jennifer's interaction with this woman. She took away some information with her. And so maybe she was interested in moving. And instead of listening to the leasing employee, she was kind of surveying the community and seeing whether or not what was going on was something that could provide her a safer place. There's so many possibilities as to what was running through Jennifer's mind at that time. And, but these are the things that my mind went to immediately while listening to the woman recount her interaction with Jennifer. Is there, is she being followed? Is that the reason for her scared demeanor? Um, is she scared because she no longer feels safe in her condo and now she needs a new place? And, you know, this place is still fairly new. Could it provide a safer place to live? That's where my mind jumps when I was listening to her tell this story. There was more than the fact that she seemed uninterested, which is what this woman describes her behavior as, as she was uninterested, she was scared, um, and was, you know, just something completely different was going on inside of Jennifer's head compared to what the woman assumed Jennifer had come into the leasing office to talk about. The lady remembers Jennifer because of the way she stood out, even on a busy day. She said there was a lot of people in the leasing office that day. Um, unfortunately, the exact date as to when Jennifer walked into her office is unknown. The lady does believe the time frame was around 1.30 to 3 o'clock p.m. on either a Saturday or a Sunday afternoon prior to her going missing. So we know because of the trip to St. Croix and we know that Jennifer was definitely in St. Croix, that rules out the weekend of January 21st and January 22nd. The Saturday and Sunday immediately prior to her going missing. So it's believed that Jennifer was there on a Saturday or Sunday about a week or so before she disappeared. And that could be the weekend of January 14th and 15th. Luckily, there was a guest card that the employee was able to go back and refer to to say, yes, Jennifer was in my office. The date, I'm assuming, wasn't on the card, but Jennifer's name was definitely there. The day after Jennifer was reported missing, the leasing employee was watching the weather for that morning to kind of see how she was going to plan her day. And all that could be talked about was Jennifer's disappearance. And when her face appeared on the screen and the newscaster was talking about, you know, what was going on with this incident, this woman went into that office that morning, pulled the guest cards from around the time frame she believed Jennifer was there, and sure enough, there's Jennifer's name on a card. This prompted her to call the crime line that night and tell them what she knew. But her story doesn't stop here. And this is where things get a really, really fucking interesting. On Monday, January 23rd, the woman and her husband who worked at the leasing office, they lived in the community in a 
apartment that was over the entrance of the community. If you can think about sky bridges that connects two different towers of a hospital, this is the style apartment that she lived in. Cars would drive under her apartment to enter and exit the, the community. And there was a roundabout on the back side of her apartment. The back, the front side of her apartment, it faced out towards um, Millennial Boulevard. And the rear windows faced the community. And it's those rear windows that she could see what's called a roundabout. And that was part of entering and exiting the complex. This was around 10.30 p.m. to 11 p.m. on that Monday night. The woman and her husband had fallen asleep on the couch and she woke to a woman screaming, help me. And she could hear the conversation going on at the roundabout. And she describes it as a very aggravated conversation. She also says she could tell that the two knew one another, but wasn't for sure if they were more than just friends or what have you. Part was a black four-door vehicle and it was stopped at the roundabout facing the community facing out of the community as as though it was leaving. There is a guy that the woman described as dark skin, maybe Hispanic or Cuban, something along these lines, talking with a blonde woman that she says fits the description of Jennifer and what she remembers Jennifer looking like. The hair was the same color, it was the same link, the build was the same, everything. And this woman was standing by the back passenger door with her hands up, described as like she was telling the person to stop or like kind of like, I don't understand what you're talking about. Why are you being so hostile? You know, why is this conversation led to where it is at this moment? Either way, it's very obvious that the woman is uncomfortable and maybe knows violence from this person and possibly something she's experienced before. This guy grabs her by the neck and brings her close to him. This causes her to cower down a little bit and the employee at this point can see that there is another man in the back seat behind the driver who was wearing black pants black shoes didn't seem to move in response to the conversation between the man and woman outside of the vehicle. After the guy says whatever he has to say to this woman, he puts her into the backseat and they take off out of the community. So this sets off some questions, right? I mean, we've all got those questions. We know that Jennifer talked to Rob around 10 p.m. that night. Um, at one point there was... Um, some information saying that they know that Jennifer's cell phone was powered down around 1040 that night. This fits the time frame of the roundabout um, confrontation. And here's the other thing. Northbridge at Millennial on the lake, it was 1.2 miles away from where Jennifer's condo complex was. So she would have been able to get over there within about seven to 10 minutes, depending on the traffic. And when you're looking at 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night, that traffic is not as bad as it would have been three o'clock in the afternoon. So like I said, this sets off questions and there's speculation that the conversation ended around 10:30. This is unconfirmed that, you know, her cell phone is powered down and the battery removed at 10:40 at night. We can't confirm this. Whether or not Orlando Police Department know this for sure or not, it's not known. But we know that police tend to hang on to this information in order to validate a confession later by someone if they ever find the person responsible. So had that occurred, we are within the time frame that this could have happened and Jennifer would have had time to go from her apartment after ending the conversation with Rob to the roundabout at the North at Northbridge and had this conversation between 1030 and 11 o'clock at night. So this is totally plausible. Then they bring up the cell phone pinging. 
I'm not exactly entirely sure where the ping and where the tower was located when Jennifer's cell phone pinged the night of January 23rd away from her apartment. According to officials, when they pulled the records, Jennifer's cell phone pinged at a different tower, putting her away from the condo complex, which she resided in, at 1040, 1030 that night. So we've got a couple of things here. Um, in 2006, the way that towers were set up and their distance, it put making, we could pinpoint somebody to a, a general area, um, but it wasn't exactly an exact location, okay? Now, if you think about all the towers that have been erected since then in 2022, if a tower goes down, your cell phone will ping to the next closest tower, which is highly likely to keep you very close to your exact location. 2006, that wasn't a thing. We still had what was called roaming, and that's where Jennifer's tower pinged, is in a roaming distance. <clears throat> so the ping could have happened because Jennifer left the condo and was over at Northbridge. There's that possibility. And then there's the possibility that the cell phone tower closest to Jennifer went down either for maintenance or due to some trouble. And this caused her phone to connect to the next closest tower. Those, of our, those are our realms of possibility, making the, it plausible that Jennifer was the woman at Northbridge during that confrontation scene that the woman had witnessed. <clears throat> And now, as I was sitting here and I was working on my show notes, I had another pop-up in my head, and it's the knock on the door. We talked about this, and I kind of touched on it just a little bit ago, but now that we know of this confrontation that happened at Northridge, <clears throat> you can't help but wonder if Jennifer did know the person on the other side of the door when the knock came while she was on the phone with Rob. And if she did know that person, did she leave with that person? And was this the person she was seen with at the roundabout? So this is what I was talking about with this case and having so many open ends and so many leads that were not investigated. We have things like this. There is a plausible explanation as to how Jennifer could be the woman seen arguing at Northbridge. Of course, the woman, because the blonde lady screamed for help. The woman watching from her apartment called the police. She gave them their, her statement of what she witnessed. And she identified the woman as wearing sweatpants and a tank top, blonde hair. She fit the build of Jennifer Kessie. This woman had seen Jennifer Kessie, not realizing, you know, that it was going to be something that would be extremely important for her to remember. But she, for whatever reason, her mind held on to that information. And we're very thankful for it because this could provide us um, a lead. It could help us identify who was, who was she with that night. And knowing the plethora of suspects in this case, you can't help but develop all these questions. And it's so hard for me to transcribe how I feel in this moment because in my mind, I'm thinking there's no way that that person of interest was somebody who was a construction worker, not after hearing this story. But in the other part of my mind, it's saying, we can't confirm this. We can't confirm the argument occurred. There's no video footage. There's no photographic footage. There's nothing except for the witness telling what she saw. And she couldn't 100% confirm that it was Jennifer that she was watching during this confrontation. So we are left with another open-ended point of this case. The day after Jennifer disappeared, the woman called the hotline and she told them not only of what happened at the leasing office when Jennifer came in, she also told them about what happened at the roundabout, even though she had already made a statement with police before. 
she requested that someone working on the case contact her because she would like to reiterate it all. It's at this point that we learn that the hotline stays anonymous regardless of the caller's wishes. So I'm going to go back and reiterate, if you know something or anything regarding this case, your best bet is to call Orlando Police Department and speak to whoever is assigned to, to Jennifer's case. As I said in the beginning, I'm not saying that Orlando PD was incompetent or that they dropped the ball or that they can't handle this. I believe that they can. I believe there are way too many leads that have no ending and that's what makes this case so difficult. If I didn't believe in their abilities, I certainly wouldn't be instructing you to call them with information. Um, but if you are willing to come out, I mean, I'm sure you can remain anonymous making a tip to the hotline with the police department. Uh, but if you are adamant that you speak to somebody, your best bet is to contact them directly. The hotline stays anonymous regardless of your wishes. And it's not entirely clear that all of those leads have been um, investigated. This is extremely important in something like this because of the length of time that it happened and when the tip came in, this could have easily been in the time frame that we could have um, seen further progress in this case than where we're at right now. If the person that we saw in the argument or the woman saw in the argument is Jennifer, that who was the guy she was talking to and who was the guy in the back seat and what is their connection to Jennifer? And are those the two men that she was looking for on the day that she went into the Northbridge leasing office? There's a lot of questions coming up, but of course you're going to come back and you're going to say, well, you said that you believe the abduction happened on the morning of January 24th and not the evening of January 23rd. And I do believe that. There's nothing saying that whatever happened between all those individuals that Jennifer wasn't eventually returned to her condo and then after setting on what happened or what the you know conversation was about, those two guys decided, you know, no, nope, she can't. She's it's too high risk. She's going to tell somebody we're going to get in trouble, blah, 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 blah. So there's nothing saying that that didn't happen. And they came back to Jennifer's apartment on the morning of the 24th and took her once again. And this time they did not return her. There's a lot of speculation about who those two guys are. There's a lot of people who have tied two certain individuals to this conversation as well. Um, and next week, I'm going to get into some of the people who've na been named, you know, persons of interest in this case, uh, whether or not they actually fit the bill of the POI in the photographs that we have and that have been shared on my Facebook page, then, you know, <laughs> we need more to go on, really, honestly. Uh, I think that this this employee has one of the best eyewitness accounts I've, I've seen in this case. Um, I'm not saying I take the argument outside of her night as 100% certainty that it was Jennifer because she couldn't positively say, yes, it was Jennifer Kessie and no, it wasn't. So mm, we're kind of pushing it. But it looks like the best possible lead at this time. Figuring out who those people were could help. And if it was Jennifer, then who those two men are and, and how they knew her and how and where their relations stem from could potentially give us some more progress in this case. I don't know. It just... Everything lines up too well with this and, and, and the timeline that we do know about what Jennifer did when she got home and between the hours of 10 o'clock the 23rd and 8 a.m. the 24th. 
A lot of questions have been asked and raised, but there seems to be some plausibility here. And if I didn't believe that this could lead somewhere, I wouldn't have shared the information with you guys. But in time, it will tell. And whoever took Jennifer, you know, your days are numbered. Eventually, somebody is going to find the last piece of the puzzle and put it all together. Whether it was Jennifer and her abductor at the roundabout on the evening of the 23rd or not, questions are still raised as to why she walked into the leasing office that afternoon before the trip to St. Croix, and what had her interest beyond the lady struggling to get information out of Jennifer regarding what she was looking for in her one-bedroom unit. What was Jennifer seemingly scared of? Was she being followed that day? Was she looking to move because she no longer felt safe? What was it about Northbridge at Millennial Lake that drew Jennifer in that day? Arguments arise about whether Jennifer was abducted the night of January 23rd or the morning of January 24th, but with so much damning evidence of her being in the condo the morning of January 24th, you can't help but reach the same conclusion. It would be too much to remember for someone staging the scene. No one would have remembered to take the context from the case, but not the case itself. No one would have remembered to run the shower so that water would be found inside of the tub behind bottles of products. Who would have thought to leave her sleep shirt on the bed, to lay out a damp towel on the washer for it to dry? So many questions to bring doubt into the theory that she was abducted the night before. But my question still is, if it was Jennifer that night at the roundabout, was the guy she was with the man that knocked on the door during her last known phone call? And if so, who is he? I want to thank you all for joining me tonight as we take a deeper look into this strange disappearance and try to decipher it into who is responsible for Jennifer Kessie's disappearance. Join me next week as we go even deeper into it all. And as always, I leave you with one last line. Hope is the thing with feather that perches in the soul and sings the tune without words and never stops at all. Much love, the true crime librarian. <laughs>